morning, friends. Josh introduced me by saying we have the privilege, so I hope to live up to that introduction. And he's right. I was installed at the same time as Peter, and Peter likes to say two Jamaicans were installed on that day. So I think we kind of look the same. So, <laughs> friends, would you join me in reading from God's Word? I'd love I'd love to have God's Word fresh in your mind as I preach. So open your Bibles to First Corinthians chapter thirteen and. Let me read quickly the first nine, uh, sorry, the first seven verses. Paul here begins by saying, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not resentful or irritable. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let me pray. Father, now that your people have assembled to hear your word preached, would you meet us here? Lord God, you are the one who opens eyes to see wonderful truths in your word. You are the one who opens ears so that we might hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And you are the one that gives us hearts of flesh so that we might feel our need for a Savior. Would you do that for us now, we pray, in the precious name of that soon-coming King in whom we glory, Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. It's going to co-op this. <laughs> um, I have a question for the children. If I said to you, it's going to sound kind of weird, but put this blindfold on, and I want you to listen to the sounds that are happening around you. So you put the blindfold on, and the first sound you hear is ruffle, ruffle, ruffle. And you're like, that kind of sounds like feathers. And then the second sound you hear is quack, quack, quack. What would you assume is standing in front of you, other than me. Anyone? A duck. A duck? Doesn't, is there no other creature on earth that goes quack, quack, quack? <laughs> well, well, what you kids have just done is something called the duck test. Now, the formulation of the duck test goes like this. If it looks like a duck, swims like a duck, quacks like a duck, then it's probably a what? A duck. A duck. <laughs> now, the purpose of, of the duck test and others like it, other formulations of ideas like this, is to take the qualities of a thing and then draw certain conclusions about that thing. Now, I think from, from what we read, Paul here is talking about love, and I think love can actually be um, formulated that way, that love itself can be identified that way. So this morning, as we're thinking about 
the defining qualities of love from 1 Corinthians 13, I want to show you that there are six, at least in this passage, six defining qualities. Five of them are couplets, and one of them is, is just a, a statement, a blanket statement. So, saints of God, I present to you this morning the love test. There's not much quacking in it, but the formulation of the love test is this. If it remains calm when opposed, and even responds with goodness, if it is not self-promoting, puffed up, or grumpy, if it hates injustice and celebrates the truth, then my friends, what you've got in your hands is Christian love. Now, this morning, as we look at 1 Corinthians 13, chapter uh, verses 4 to 7, um, I, I want to draw out those defining qualities and maybe help us to see how we're called to love, especially in a hard season like this. So the first quality we're given is love remains calm when opposed and even responds to that opposition with goodness. So you'll notice Paul begins with the phrase, love is patient and kind. This is the first couplet. So consider that first word, patient. This isn't the kind of wait and see patience like you're sitting at the bus stop just waiting for the bus to show up. It's not that kind of patience. This patience is, is the word that's used when you're bearing up under opposition. This is the kind of patience that is expected when you're being tested or challenged or opposed in any way. Now, I can show you one example of this from the life of Jesus, if you, if, you, if you would. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. So Jesus faced regular opposition from the religious leaders of his day, but he always responds with this kind of patient love. Here we're going to see one such event where Jesus patiently endures their opposition. So if you will, turn to Mark chapter 12. Verse 13 tells us this. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? You kind of see what they're doing there in verse 13. They're kind of trying to butter up Jesus. It, it tells us that they came to trap him in his talk, in his words. And what better way to do that than with this heavy political issue? It's just a side note, but it's, it's almost like 2,000 years ago, people are arguing about taxes and, and, and government and politics. But verse 13 gives us Jesus' response. Look at how calmly, look at how patiently he responds to them. Verse 15 says, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled. So you see there, he didn't fall for the trap. And there are many other attempts, opportunities like this, where they, they approach Jesus with some disingenuous question or 
legal riddle and they're trying to trap Jesus in his words and yet he never explodes on them. He never blows up. The only time you see Jesus' anger is at their hardness of heart in serving God. It's kind of like the Coyote and Roadrunner cartoon. I don't know if any of you kids remember that. Maybe the adults remember this more than kids, but the Coyote and the Roadrunner, the, the Coyote is, is like a wolf kind of creature and I, apparently they still live around Brampton where we're from, but it, it's a wolf kind of creature and he chases this really, really fast bird through the desert and he sets up traps and elaborate contraptions to trap him and none of it works. And that's kind of how the religious leaders were attempting to trap Jesus in his words, but it never worked. In fact, not only just does Jesus not fall for the trap, but he remains calm and he responds to them with goodness. This takes us to the second word there, the second part of that couplet, the word kind. Now this kindness doesn't simply be mean, be nice. I remember in elementary school where you're learning how to write paragraphs and the teacher was like, never use the word nice because it doesn't mean anything. But this, this word kindness here doesn't mean be nice. The, the word Paul here is, is using is a kindness that means when you're opposed, you patiently endure, but then you move towards that opposer with goodness. Paul says, Be, uh, love is patient and kind. And you see that there in Jesus' response in verse 15. So keep your Bibles open if you got it there at Mark 12. And, and look again at Jesus' response. I'll read it quickly again. Again, we're told, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now the logic in Jesus's argument here is that if this coin stamped with the image and likeness of Caesar belongs to Caesar, then how much more these religious leaders, how much more all men and all women who are stamped with the likeness and inscription of God's image, how much more do they belong to him? So even in this moment, Jesus is calling these men to repentance. He's calling these men to consider that if the coin belongs to Caesar because it bears his image, how much more do you, sinner, belong to God because you bear his image. Jesus is preaching. This is the mark of true love. Now, the last time you were opposed on, on something like Facebook, I don't know if people still use Facebook, but the last time you were opposed on social media, how did you respond? Did you move towards that opposition with love or was there a, something burning in your heart, some kind of need to defend yourself, some kind of need to lash out? That's what Jesus is calling us here to consider this morning. The last time you were challenged at work, maybe, or even in traffic this morning as you made your way in, some guy in a van almost ran us off the road, but, you know, <laughs> how did you respond the last time you were opposed, even in something like traffic? This is what Jesus is calling us to, to consider. What's happening in your heart when you are opposed? Now, this is the kind of patient love we're called to as Christians. The kind of love that holds up against challenge and opposition and then moves towards that opponent with love. It's the first defining quality of Christian love. The second is this. Love does not promote self. Paul says, love does not envy or boast. Now, the word 
Envy here means to be grieved by the success of others. Could you be, I guess, identified or labeled as a jealous person? Do you find yourself saying things in your mind maybe like, why does she have such a big house? What's she going to do with all this space? You don't need that flashy car. What are you doing with rims? You find yourself thinking things like this or feeling things like this in your heart. Do you ever find yourself wanting what someone else has? Maybe a job or car or house or spouse? This kind of jealous envy is revealing a, a, a deep and dark and evil heart. And so if your natural response is to, to someone else's success is jealousy, then Christian, you need to repent. You need to turn away from that evil and you need to look to God and call on him to save you. Now, if envy means to want what others have, then, then boasting, the other side of the equation, is, is, is the word here that refers to maybe showing off somebody who's attention-seeking. So maybe you're not envious. Maybe coveting isn't your cup of tea. Maybe you're the one with the new promotion or the big house or the fancy car, but have you received these blessings with humility? Or, or are you constantly talking about how hard you've worked, how you've worked your fingers to the bone, and, and how you've, you've worked so many long hours and that you deserve this, these, these little pleasures of life? Friends, boasting here is just as bad as envying. I think that's why Paul ties them together. The envious person is accusing God of, provide, of not providing enough while the boastful person ignores God altogether. One person says, God hasn't given me what I need. The other person says, I have no need of God. Well, both of these extremes are a sinful kind of self-promotion, and self-promotion kills love. Love is not self-promotion. It's also not puffed up. That's the third defining quality that Paul gives. He says, Love is not arrogant or rude. Love moves through the world with a humble view of itself. Love is not puffed up with self-importance. Kids, you know what happens to a balloon if, if you take the balloon out of the bag and you start blowing it, blowing it and you just never stop? What happens to the balloon? Does it keep growing or does something else happen to it? It pops. It eventually explodes. That's kind of the image that Paul is using here of this this arrogant person, somebody who's so puffed up that they're unseemly, they're, they're, they're out of shape, as it were. And Paul warns us to not be like that. When talking about Christian love, he says again, it is not arrogant or rude. Christian, how, have you ever considered how often the disciples in the Gospels are found arguing amongst themselves about who will be the greatest in the kingdom? I think we're seeing there a kind of inflated view of, of themselves. They had an inflated view of themselves. So one example is given to us in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 and 45. If you want to turn there, you will. I'll read it. But here's the accounts of James and John, and they've just asked Jesus to give them places of honor on the left side and the right side when he's glorified. And Peter, right? Peter, he has, he has the nerve. Peter and the other apostles are incensed when they hear this. They're so angry. But look at how Jesus uses this moment to teach humility. And Jesus called them to him. This is beginning in verse 42. 
And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then look at the beautiful way Jesus grounds this statement in his own life. Verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying here that the kingdom of God is not like any other kingdom. The structure is not based on power or eloquence or self-importance. It's based on humble, low service. Jesus says, even I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. If anyone had the right to say, serve me, it was Jesus. And even he says, I have come to serve. And that's the example, saints of God. Christian love is not self-centered. It's not arrogant. It's also not rude. That's the other phrase that Paul uses in this couplet. Our best definition of rude is someone who acts inappropriately in conduct or speech. This is the kind of person who doesn't consider how their words or actions affect others. Christian, never let it be said that you lack Christ-like love on the job or in public because of rudeness or inconsiderate speech or any such thing. In, instead, consider others. Consider your speech. Consider your conduct. Consider, friends, your Lord. So are you an arrogant person? Are you somebody who has an overinflated view of self? Are you puffed up like that balloon example we, we talked about? Well, that's not Christian love. Our love for one another is not arrogant or rude. It's also not self-centered. And that's the fourth quality. Paul says here, it does not insist on its own way. I think I could confess this, that this is the place where I struggle with my own Christian love. Love is not looking out for yourself. Consider these questions. Do you feel the need to constantly be right or to have the last word in every conversation? Do you look at a set of circumstances and, and ask, you know, maybe not audibly, but in your mind, what's, what's in this for me? What can I get out of this? Paul, writing to another church, will give a full explanation of the meaning of this phrase. Listen to the depths of selflessness described in the passage uh, in Philippians chapter 2. You can turn there if you would. But beginning in verse 4, Paul tells us he's going to give us this, this amazing example of humility. And I think if you're familiar with the text, you know who he's drawing on. But verse 4 begins like this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. Now, stop there. That, just consider that that word, where, where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, own way, that's, that's the way it's phrased in our passage. Love does not insist on its own way. But in Philippians, it says own interests. They're the same phrase, same wording, same Greek, if you would. Um, so keep that in mind as we continue reading. Verse 5 continues, 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, already yours, saints of God, in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is the kind of selfless love that Christ calls you to, Christian. He's, he's not calling you to be the atoning sacrifice for anyone else. We know that that's impossible. But just look at what Paul is saying here. The point is to go low and to serve one another. Give of your time, your, your energy, your resources, and, and do all of this in love to others. That's what Jesus did. You see that all through the Gospels, and you see that up until his very last breath, that Jesus is giving up himself to those who don't really deserve it. Insisting on your own way is not love. In fact, it's the opposite of love. We'll touch on that a little bit later. So, so love is not self-centered. It's also not short-tempered. And that's the fifth defining quality. I might ask even, how are you doing with the love test? I don't know if you're keeping score. I think this is one of those things that um, I often think about. How am I doing with, with the, the sermon points? But if you're keeping score of the love test, you might find that maybe you're lacking in some areas. But just keep going. Follow me. The word here used for short-tempered is defined as somebody who is easily angered. Paul is describing a person who exhibits no control over their emotions. And so I might ask these questions. Do people walk on eggshells when you enter a room? Do, do people at work know not to talk to you before you get your morning coffee? Do, do people feel like this person is, is best described as grumpy or grouchy or angry? What do you like at a restaurant when they get your order wrong? Of course I'm upset. This idiot got my coffee order wrong. Is that something you've ever said? Are you so thin-skinned that a wrong coffee order will ruin your entire morning? Well, this kind of anger is not Christian love. This kind of emotional fragility where you, you, you're ready to scrap at the drop of a dime is not the way that Christ calls us to love. The Christian way of love looks for peace, not vengeance. It's not looking out for its own way. Now, it's not short-tempered, and it also doesn't hold a grudge. That phrase there, resentful, is describing someone who keeps a record of offenses. They keep a list of everyone who's done them wrong. Are you the kind of person who forgets your wedding anniversary? But maybe you remember harsh words from a, a co-worker at a job that you no longer work at who, who said something that ticked you off five years ago? Are you that kind of person? Do you have uh, kind of like parking spaces in your head, like a grudge garage where you just park all the dumb, hurtful, you know, offensive things that people have said to you over the years? Is that you? Well, friends, that also is not Christian love. In 1 Peter 4, 8, you don't have to turn there. We're told, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love 
covers a multitude of sins. I don't know if you're curious, but do you want to see a love that covers over a multitude of sins? If you want to see that, you look no further than Jesus. Jesus, his, his love is forgiving. His love is self-sacrificial. His love is explicit on the dreadful Roman cross where you hear him shout, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I wonder if you've ever thought, who, who was Jesus praying for? Certainly he wasn't praying for himself. Who, who then was he praying for? Maybe, maybe he was praying for the guards who were at the foot of the cross at that very moment, gambling for his last piece of clothing. Maybe the religious leaders who finally got their man, they finally got him in some, some lie and they were able to, to get him on that Roman cross. Maybe that's who he was praying for. Maybe he was praying for the crowd of onlookers who were waiting with bated breath to see the last living breath from these three men leave their bodies. The crowd who days before were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Maybe he was praying for them. Friends, Jesus was praying for his enemies. He was praying for the entire group. He was showing us on that cross, bleeding and naked, that love covers a multitude of sins. Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Father, avenge me. He doesn't say, Father, look at how they've treated your holy son. He doesn't say these things that he had the right to say. What he says is, Father, forgive them. Friend, I wonder if you're here this morning and you have not felt that forgiveness from God. That you have not been reconciled to a holy God through his precious son. What's stopping you? Here you're seeing the love of Jesus Christ on display. You're seeing the love of Jesus that covers a multitude of sins, a multitude of your own sins. You can accept him now. You can seek that forgiveness now. You can repent of those sins now. And so if you haven't yet turned from your sins and put your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then you can do it now, friend. Your love is weak and anemic until you do. Now, we make all kinds of claims of love. I love my life. I love my family. I love my wife. You can love your, your husband or your kids or your job, but your love is incomplete until you know the love of God. So I call on you this morning, if you do not know that love, turn away from your sins. Reach out, call out, cry out to a God who forgives everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. We're told that all who call on the name of Jesus will not be put to shame. This is a God who is pleased to save. He's a God who will forgive you if you ask in this instant, if you ask in faith. Now this this takes us to our last defining quality, and that is that love hates evil and celebrates the truth. Paul says, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Got some more questions. I, I wonder, what, what kinds of things makes your heart glad? 
Do you enjoy seeing sin on display in others? Maybe not in yourself. You're not doing the thing, but you enjoy watching others do it. Are you excited when you hear of violence or strife or disunity, broken fellowship? Do you enjoy a little injustice every now and then? Do people see you as someone who loves drama? Or maybe you rejoice with the truth. Now, consider again the religious leaders at the foot of the cross while Jesus hung there praying for those very men. Matthew 27 verses 42 and 43 tells us what they were saying. So these men who know that they have put Jesus there under false pretenses look up at this innocent man and this is what they say. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Now, if you're familiar with the gospels, you know that these men orchestrated a false arrest. They, they held a late night court. It was a mock trial. They already had the verdict in. Jesus was hanging on a cross because of deceit and betrayal. And what do these righteous men do? They mock him. This, I think, is the height of injustice. And that's why I ask that question. Do you perhaps take pleasure in a little injustice every now and then? Or, or maybe you do rejoice with the truth like Paul calls us to here. The truth here is referring to everything that lines up with God's kingdom. In John's gospel, Jesus says of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Here are the things you ought to be stirred by, saints of God. Anything that is true or honorable, just or pure, lovely, commendable, and excellent, anything worthy of praise, these are the things that your minds ought to be drawn to. And you cannot find a better example of these qualities than Jesus. And so again, I, I leave you with the question, do you enjoy uh, arguments, fights, the suffering of others? Is, is this you? Or do you rejoice with Christ, with God's truth? I think this question will begin to help you examine your own heart. What's happening in here when, when you're moving through the world? And my hope really is that you've been examining your heart this whole time, that you've, you've you know, taken the love test with me. Maybe you've taken the love test and you've found areas of weakness. Maybe you've taken the test and, and, and even failed. Maybe you don't remain calm when opposed. Maybe your opponent does not receive your love when they stand up against you. Maybe you've discovered that you love a little bit of self-promotion. Maybe you're a little self-centered, a little short-tempered. Maybe the kid was wrong when he got your coffee order mixed up. 
Maybe you take pleasure in injustice and, and maybe the truth is just a little bit boring. Well, if you've failed the love test, there are two things that you need to do right now. I think the first is to repent. It's to turn away from the sins that have caused you to fail this test. It's to turn away from those sins, repent, cry out to God and ask that he would forgive your sins. The second thing is another R word. You need to remember. You need to remember that even if you have failed this test, Christ has not failed the love test. You could easily take this passage and remove the word love and insert the name Christ and nothing would change. This passage could easily read like this. Jesus was patient and kind. Jesus did not envy or boast. Jesus was not arrogant or rude. Jesus did not insist on his own way. Jesus was not irritable or resentful. Jesus did not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoiced with the truth. And so is that how you love Christian? Do you love like Jesus? Obviously, I am not a member here. I am not a regular attender. I'm kind of just swooping in from the other side of Rexdale and I'm going to preach this message and call you to this heavy love and then I'm going to get in my car and drive back to Elmhurst. But I preached this uh, particular subject because there's a, a, a fear that, that I'm feeling for the churches in Rexdale and the churches in Toronto. And that my fear is that as we come out of our COVID bubbles, our COVID caves, we're going to refuse to love like Jesus. We're going to let things like vaccine status and masks and all the other things that come along with it, we're going to let those things separate us. We're going to let those things be the dividing factors in our churches. And we're going to move through the world without the love of Christ. I'm afraid of that for, for myself. I'm afraid of that for you, Royal York. I don't want that for this church. I don't want that for my church. I don't want that for any church in Rexdale. So that's why I've, I've opened up this passage the way that I have. That's why I've called you to this test. I believe the length of the lockdowns have caused some of our love to grow cold. And so I'm calling you to this kind of love because this is the kind of love that Jesus calls us to. And so my, my final question, I guess, is will you do it? Will you love the way that Christ has called you to love? Husband, will you turn away from your selfishness and love your wife like Jesus loves the church? Christian, will you get out of your comfort zone and love your neighbor like Jesus loves your neighbor? Saints of God, will you commit to praying for your enemies, those who oppose you, those who are your, your explicit opponents in the world? Will you commit to praying for them? At the risk of sounding redundant, I think this is an overused phrase, but it's so true. I want to remind you that the opposite of love is not hate, it's self. The opposite of love is not, is not hatred, it's selfishness. And so Jesus shows us a love that bears all things, a love that believes all things, a love that 
hoped all things and ultimately a love that endured all things to the end on a bloody Roman cross. Don't forget that Philippians chapter 2 tells us that we are to have this mind which is already yours, saints of God. It's already yours. You just got to pick it up and walk with it. So you can love like this. God has given you his Holy Spirit. If you have repented and cried out for salvation, if you are a Christian, then the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling in you. So this love is possible. And so you can love like this today. I don't want you to remember the ways that you've failed. I don't want you to feel like this is too hard for me. Don't look at what's past. If you've failed the love test, this is one of the only open book tests that you'll have as an adult. Open your Bibles, read the word of God and take the love test again. My hope, my desire, my prayer is that the churches in, in Rexdale, the churches in Toronto, the church in Canada, would be a church that breathes and breeds this kind of love. That by his Holy Spirit and according to the work that is that has been done for you and for me in Christ Jesus, that God would be working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. This kind of love would be our very genetic makeup. That this kind of love, Christian, would be in our DNAs because it is. Lord, make it so. Let me pray for us. God of peace, since you have raised from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of our souls, by the blood of the eternal covenant, your gathered people here ask that you would now equip us with everything good that we may do your will that you would be working in us that which is pleasing in your sight pray that you would do this through the precious blood of jesus christ our savior and we pray that to him be glory forever and ever amen